You're listening to Smarter Conservative Radio, show 26. Hey everybody, this is Patrick Ketchum, host of Smarter Conservative Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to start off by talking about one of my favorite people to read and study about. Not necessarily one of my favorite people, though. The seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. The reason I want to talk about him today is because he appears to be somewhat of a Trump idol, as in Trump's idol, right? So Trump just put his picture in the Oval Office. So when the president comes into office, he's allowed to rearrange the White House and especially his office and their living quarters upstairs just about any way they want to, right? So they can pull pictures from the other rooms and bring them into the Oval Office and change the carpet and change the desk. And they've, you know, they've got tons of furniture that different presidents have used. So, uh, for example, I think Trump took uh, Reagan's rug and, and brought that back out and he's using that. So anyway, Andrew Jackson is one of those people who has been compared to Trump since Trump's rise. These are two people who rely heavily on populism. Like I said, Andrew Jackson was the seventh president of the United States, and let's just talk a little bit about his life. So he was born here, and his family heavily supported the revolutionary cause. In fact, I think he was even sort of a message runner in his, uh, in his youth, like 12 or 13 years old, and, and he, he was captured by the British at one point and beaten or something like that. So he was intimately familiar with the cause and the struggle for freedom, along with his family. He ended up joining the military and became a very well-known military leader. Uh, he was responsible as president for setting up the what is now known as the uh, Trail of Tears, where he um, they buy lands from they bought lands from the Indians in Florida and basically kicked them out and um, forced them to make an exodus to the West, where they stopped mostly in. Uh, Oklahoma and other regions nearby, and so thousands of Indians died during that. But he was very focused on um, on those Indian wars while he was a commander in the military. He also got a lot of fame in the War of 1812, where he performed, you know, spectacularly in a few key battles. So he won himself a lot of acclaim. He joined. He became a, a congressman and then a senator, and then ran for president. And this is where it gets interesting. So he actually ran against the then Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, and the son of former President John Adams, John Quincy Adams. All right, so these three guys running against each other for President of the United States. And actually, Andrew Jackson ends up getting a plurality of the votes. So he gets more votes than than, uh, Henry Clay did, and he also got more votes than John Quincy Adams did. However, because, it appears, because... Nobody got a, a majority of the Electoral College. Now we're all familiar with this issue after this last election. Because he didn't get a majority, the decision went to the House of Representatives. Now, of course, Henry Clay was the Speaker of the House of Representatives and had in, an inordinate amount of power. And so he got together, it appears, with John Quincy Adams and said, if you make me your Secretary of State, I will make sure that you become the next President of the United States. And that's how they did it. John Quincy Adams became President. Henry Clay became Secretary of State. And Andrew Jackson was kicked to the curb. Now, he did not go away silently into the night. 
Uh, quite the contrary. He made a big deal. It was a very controversial issue, and he made it even more so and said that he had been cheated out of, out of the presidency, which the people, he said, wanted him to have, right? And so this was a big issue for the four years that John Quincy Adams was in office, and then Andrew Jackson ran again and, of course, clinched the victory. This is where that great story comes out of where he had, you know, all the inaugural balls and that kind of thing. When the new president is sworn in, he actually had one where he just opened the White House doors to the public, and they got in and became rowdy and raucous, and it ruined a lot of the furniture and stuff inside of the White House. But he was a man of the people, and so that was important to him. In fact, they called him Old Hickory. You probably have heard that nickname for Andrew Jackson before, Old Hickory. Evidently, he used to carry around a hickory cane, a cane made of hickory wood, and one time, there's a story that one time, a lunatic, this guy who was just crazy, um, thought, he was, thought he was the rightful heir to, uh, to, the, you know, to the crown in England. And that somehow Andrew Jackson had denied him his, you know, his crown, and, and he wasn't king before, because of Andrew Jackson, whatever. So he took a couple of pistols, and he, and he went and he fired them right at Jackson, you know, up close. And... They both misfired, thanks to technology of the early 19th century, apparently. So they both misfired, and Jackson, as a result, you know, he sees that he's about to get shot. He doesn't get shot, so he takes his hickory cane, and he just beats this guy to a pulp, and he has to be pulled off this guy just to get him to stop beating him. So he's a very passionate guy. He apparently once killed somebody in a duel and uh, had a lot of duels, but I guess people don't always die in duels. I'm not sure. Maybe he killed more people. His central issue as president, there, you know, there were a lot of things, and he, during this time, you have to understand that we, we, we aren't in the Civil War yet, but there are, there are things that are happening that are just ticking off southern states, right? Taxation that they, that they don't agree with, right? Federal troops going certain places that the South doesn't like. And even though Jackson is a very small government guy and he wants to decentralize things, he refuses to let the South even think about seceding any of the southern states. He, he, he insists that the Union be kept together. And so this is really an important aspect of his presidency. Something else that he was very passionate about were the banks, right? The central bank, the Fed, the Federal Reserve, we call it today, the, the Bank of the United States at that time, uh, this, I think it was called the Second Bank, and the charter was uh, approved by Congress. Basically, you've got the United States government's money, and, and you need to put it somewhere. And so the Congress approved this bank. But the citizens of the United States can also keep their money there. And so it's, it's this very sketchy agreement, and it, you know, it still is, in a lot of ways, what we have in place today. But Andrew Jackson was very uncomfortable with it. He felt like you know, wealthy business owners and bankers were taking, advan- taking advantage of normal, everyday, average citizens of the United States in the operations of this bank. And so he insisted that this thing be shut down. It was a very big controversy that lasted a long time. He wasn't able to kill it in the end, obviously, after he left the presidency. This has become a way of life in America. But it's ironic. It's ironic that of the nine presidents of the United States who eventually had their faces plastered on a bill, you know, a, a dollar bill, $5 bill, a piece of currency, paper piece of currency of the United States, of the nine... of presidents, 
Andrew Jackson is definitely one of them. He's on the $20 bill. So it's ironic. The guy who would have hated that honor the very most was the guy who got it. So maybe just sort of a mean joke to play on Andrew Jackson. All right, let's move on to our economic moment for the day. Today's economic moment is brought to you by Donald J. Trump. Now we're going to listen to a little clip from uh, Spicer, the press secretary for Donald Trump. And he's going to talk about what we're going to do to pay for the wall. Trump came out with this plan. He said, we're going to put a 20% import tax, or tariff as they're called, on all imports from Mexico. And that will pay for the wall in like a year. And Spicer goes on to explain. All right, listen. I think when you look at the the plan that's that's taking shape now, using comprehensive tax reform uh, as a means to tax... Uh, imports from countries that we have a trade deficit from, like Mexico. We have, a, if you tax that 50%, 50 billion dollars at 20% of imports, which is, by the way, a practice that 160 other countries do. Right now, our, our country's policy is to tax exports and let imports flow freely in, which is ridiculous. Uh, but by doing it that way, we can do $10 billion a year and easily pay for the wall just through that mechanism alone. Um, if you think about what a, what a tax, a border tax on imports, from countries like Mexico that we have a huge trade deficit does. Uh, that's really going to provide the funding. But the other net positive that you have to realize is that through the wall, um, not only do we secure our border, but I think we're going to save additional money that we would have had to spend on tracking down and, uh, illegal immigrants and on immigration. So it's actually a huge win for the American taxpayer uh, and for American security when you look at uh, the kind of plan that's coming to fruition right now. All right, so basically... He's saying that we're going to tax everything that comes into the United States from Mexico, and that will easily pay for the wall and more, right, if we just do this for one year. Well, the problem with that is that tariffs are really just taxes on our own people. How do we know this? Because we've done it before. This used to be the policy of the United States in almost every other country before, you know, the 1960s, 70s, 80s, when free trade really took a leap forward. See, economics is sort of like any other discipline where we have to, it goes through phases, but we also progress as we learn more. And we learned that tariffs make everyone more poor. And free trade makes everyone richer. So what's going to happen if we have this tariff on imports from Mexico? Well, it's going to, let's say you have, you're buying something for a dollar from Mexico. I was about to say nachos, but I didn't want to you know, offend anybody, so I'll say a burrito. Say you're buying a burrito from Mexico for a dollar, okay? And now it's a dollar twenty, twenty percent increase, right? So now it's a dollar twenty. Um, well, that means that Mexico is going to have to do one or two things. It's either going to sell the burritos in the United States for a dollar twenty, and charge Americans more for the products, and therefore fewer Americans will buy a burrito for a dollar twenty as opposed to just a dollar, or it'll keep the price at a dollar, and it'll just lose an extra twenty cents for every purchase. Does that make sense? So the Trump administration is counting on Mexico taking the hit. They're going to take the hit, and that's going to pay for a wall. They're going to keep the price is the same. It's going to be a dollar, and they'll just make 20 cents less than they would have regularly. 
Well, the problem is that that never happens. It never happens completely like this. Probably what will happen is that, you know, businesses don't have tons of margin usually because they have so many other expenses. Something like this will happen. Uh, 20% tax, and so if we had a burrito for a dollar, instead of being a dollar now, it's going to be, they're going to be a dollar 15, right? It won't be the dollar 20, it won't be the whole thing. Mexico will eat some of the cost because they want Americans to just keep buying their stuff. But uh, now Americans have to fork over another extra 15 cents per burrito. All right, it's, it's kind of, maybe it's a stupid analogy, but that's how it works when large amounts of things are traded. You know, we buy a lot of auto parts for Mexico, for example. A lot of factories down there are making transmissions and engines and tires and that kind of thing. All of those are going to be taxed. They make a lot of clothing for us, shirts and pants, Levi's, whatever. All of that's going to be taxed. A lot of stuff is going to go up in price if this actually is implemented. I have no idea why this is a big deal to Donald Trump that they pay for the wall. Not a great idea and not very economically sound. And that has been our economics moment for the day. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about this border ban that people are talking about right now. So Trump came out and said that he's going to implement the extreme vetting, and he gave a list of nine countries that are not going to be allowed to immigrate to the United States uh, and, and announced some other measures that people will have to go through in order to immigrate to the United States. The visas, even visit the United States, are going to have to go through very tough vetting. Here's a little bit from an interview he had with Sean Hannity the other day. Let's talk a little bit about the executive orders on Syria, Iraq, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen, and 120 ban. That goes to the promise of extreme vetting. Totally extreme. Explain. And beyond just those countries, we're going to have extreme vetting. We're going to have extreme vetting for people coming into our country. And if we think there's a problem, it's not going to be so easy for people to come in anymore. You look at what's gone on. I mean, we could just go one after another, but then you go to other countries and you look at Nice, and you look at different places all over Europe, and you look at what's happening with Germany, it's a mess. The crime is incredible. And we're just not going to let that happen here. All right. So I'm not sure why certain uh, countries weren't included in, the, in that list. I mean, they, they named a lot of different countries in the Middle East, but Pakistan wasn't one of them, for example. Was that Afghanistan on there? It felt like they left off a few countries. So the problem with this story is that it shifts the narrative into the left's hands, okay? So now the narrative everywhere is that Trump hates immigrants and, and that all these refugees are exactly like Jews from Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s that the United States wasn't accepting. You know, it's the same thing that the Jews back then were being portrayed as, you know, possible... Nazi insurgents, and that's why we can't take him into our country and that, that kind of thing. That, that's why right now Trump is getting killed on the narrative by Democrats on this. And so one of a few things has got to happen. He's either got to adjust this. This is only going to take place for 30 days, and then there's going to be a review. So maybe it'll be really short. Or if it's going to continue, he's got to find a way to help refugees over there, over there, you know, with money that is collected from the United States, maybe some money from our government coffers that will go over to help assist them without bringing them over here. And he has to make that message crystal clear. Because the two competing narratives right now is, 
We are not letting these refugees come to the United States, even though they're suffering, just like the Jews were in Germany. And Trump's narrative is, well, we're protecting some Americans from some crazies that would get through if we let them in. All right, so the first narrative is more powerful. It's better to save, you know, six million Jews uh, as opposed to making sure everything's perfectly safe. So Trump has to fix that narrative problem. The Republicans have to work on that. All right, so the next story is that we are looking forward next week to finding out who Trump is going to put on the Supreme Court. Now, this is exciting. He's got a few great options. During the campaign, he came out with a list of, I think, 10 names, and then a few weeks later, he came out with a list of about 20 more. So that was really helpful for everyone to kind of see where he was going with his preferences on Supreme Court. Let's talk about a few. It appears that he has narrowed it down to about three, two or three justices uh, that he would select for the Supreme Court. And remember, this is going to replace Antonin Scalia. Man, I remember the morning that Antonin Scalia died last year. What a depressing day. Um, and it was, it was interesting because, you know, I was working, I was in, I don't know where, I think I was in South Carolina on the campaign for Marco Rubio, and all those, these things are running through my mind all the time because, you know, that's what I'm doing, I'm on the campaign, I'm thinking about the presidency, and I just think to myself, you know, thank goodness that the, that we still have the Supreme Court. <laughs> you know, I think, I think I personally jinxed, uh, <laughs> Um, Anthony Scalia into uh, dying that night, maybe. But I, I thought to myself, you know, thank goodness. Fi- everything else is on fire. At that time, you know, Obama was the president. Uh, the, the, the candidates weren't doing well. It, looks like, it looked like Trump was the front runner, which in my mind at that time was the worst thing ever. Um, I just thought to myself, thank goodness we have the Supreme Court. I woke up the next morning first thing I heard, Antonin Scalia passes away during the night. So I'm never going to have a thought like that again about someone I like. Uh, lesson learned. So here are the three names that Trump has going for the Supreme Court. Number one is Bill Pryor. All right, so Bill Pryor is 54 years old, and he serves on the 11th Circuit Court in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, the important thing about a lot of these guys is they aren't from New York, the, the, the Northeast. Right, if you look at the Supreme Court today, it's basically everyone is from the Northeast. Everyone is, you know, the same religion, they went to the same schools. It's incredible. So they're trying to diversify that a little bit more, getting justices, judges from outside of the uh, the Northeast area. So he's from Georgia. He went to Northeast Louisiana University for college, and he received his law degree from Tulane University. The thing he was no- most known for before becoming, uh, going on to the 11th Circuit Court of Atlanta was he was the Attorney General from Alabama. And in 1997, he removed the state's chief justice when that person refused to follow the federal court order to remove a statue of the Ten Commandments uh, from the Supreme Court. So, yeah, that's the thing he's known for, I guess. Uh, okay. All right, but he is pretty good as far as uh, his, his decisions have been on the court that are, you know, he's the pieces that he's written, the opinions that he's written, and the positions that he's taken. He's called Roe v. Wade the worst abomination in the history of constitutional law. That it is. I mean, these, this is clearly something that should be handled at a state level. At this point, I wanted to talk about Pryor first, because at this point, it looks like his chances of the nomination as the Supreme Court justice is fading a little bit, according to sources inside the White House. So, We'll see on Justice Pryor. Uh, next one is Thomas Hardiman. Thomas 
Hardiman is 51 years old, and he is on the third court, Circuit Court of Appeals in Pittsburgh. All right, so the big thing about this guy is that he's on the same court as Judge Marianne Trump Barry. That's right, Donald Trump's older sister sits on the exact same court, and she is a wild leftist, okay? She's a wild leftist, but she's recommending this guy to Trump. She's telling her brother, hey, pick Thomas Hardiman. I get along with this guy. I like him. So, <laughs> red flag number one. Um, but this guy has some good opinions, and he's written some good uh, uh, opinions from the court. He, he wrote, those who drafted, there was a, there was a case uh, with, in New Jersey about New Jersey not letting their citizens have guns. You know, their citizens have to have express reason why they need a gun before they can have permission from in New Jersey to have a gun. He wrote a great piece about why states have a right to limit, to, you know, somewhat control how citizens are using guns, but they have no right to take away the Second Amendment itself. And so he has, he has a decent record. Uh, he has often sided with a state in the death penalty cases. He's never written on an abortion case. Um, he was unanimously confirmed. And when someone's unanimously confirmed by Democrats and Republicans alike, you have to wonder, you know, were they asleep that day or is this kind of uh, a center-of-the-line kind of guy and maybe not going to represent the legacy of Antonin Scalia very well? Who knows? So the last choice, and my favorite, I'm a little biased here, is a guy named Neil Gorsuch. So the things against this guy, he's on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver. Uh, unfortunately, he did go to school at Harvard and Oxford, and so he might not be the pick since they're sort of trying to get away from the Northeast uh, feel of everyone coming from the same place of the country. Um, but he is great. He is definitely in the image. He was made by God in the image of Antonin Scalia. In the Hobby Lobby case, Gorsuch wrote that the government should not force people who, uh, with sincerely held religious beliefs, into conduct that their religion teaches them to be gravely wrong. And so he's been very strong in supporting and defending religious rights and liberties. Um, Congressional Democrats Democrats have indicated that any of Trump's nominees would be, you know, forcefully uh, opposed. But maybe here's the cool thing. One of the guys who reviews these cases and the you know these opinion pieces that these judges write about cases wrote this about Gorsuch's opinions. He says the great compliment that Gorsuch's legal writing is in a class with Scalia's is deserved. Gorsuch's opinions are exceptionally clear and routinely entertaining. He is an unusual pleasure to read, and it is always plain exactly what he thinks and why. And so. You know, if we can get someone like that on the Supreme Court, I think we would be in good hands. But none of them sound horrible, right? They they all sound like they they lean the right way. They're they're constitutional originalists. You know, they don't believe in a living, breathing constitution from everything I've read about them. So it doesn't sound so bad. Uh, either way, I don't think Trump can go too wrong. But hey, who knows? All right, the other thing I want to talk about this week is that. Trump had a joint press conference with Theresa May. Theresa May is the prime minister from England. And we don't know a whole lot about Theresa May. I tend to like her, though, just from the things I've, I've read and seen so far. 
Um, politics over there is a little screwy, right? They've got two parties, the conservative party and the labor party. And so sort of conservatives sort of like our Republican party, the labor party is sort of like the Democrat party in this, in this country, but not exactly. Uh, Theresa May replaced David Cameron. Cameron. If you'll remember, David Cameron is also from the conservative party, but he was in power when Brexit, the Brexit vote happened, and he was not in favor of it. And so he said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. Uh, I can't re- represent the country well if we're going to exit the European Union. I, that's not what I wanted to happen, and so I think I should remove myself. And so she was voted on to replace David Cameron, all right? And so she is from the Conservative Party, and she is the, only the second woman to ever become prime minister in England other than, you guessed it, Margaret Thatcher. Now, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan during the 80s had a special relationship. Her, one of her advisors said that they were political soulmates, right? They, they hardly made a move without consulting the other, and they had very um, similar ideologies, right? But it's interesting because I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping beyond hope that Theresa May and, and Donald Trump will be the next Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. So you got M- Theresa May is obviously sort of a nerd, right? You, you watch her in this press conference, and I'll play a, a minute of it in a, here in a sec. Uh, you watch her, and she's very wonky. She talks about the numbers. And it goes to Trump, and he's like, yeah, we're going to have a great relationship and it's going to be awesome. You know, he's kind of like just the cool kid leaning on his desk and talking about how great it's going to be. And she's actually crunching the numbers. And this was sort of, not completely, this is sort of the relationship between Margaret Thatcher and, um, and Ronald Reagan. Whereas Margaret Thatcher was more entrenched in the policy things. And, you know, Ronald Reagan was maybe a little bit more of a, he was a Hollywood actor. And he, he, got, he got the big picture of things and how things needed to go. And what Amer- made America and were the Western powers great? And what were those... Uh, fundamental principles war. So I'm really hoping that it's that kind of relationship. L- listen to a part of the press conference here. I'm delighted to be able to congratulate you on what was a stunning election victory. Uh, and as you say, the invitation is an indication of the strength and importance of the special relationship that exists between our two countries, a relationship based on the bonds of history, of family, kinship, and common interests. And in a further sign of the importance of that relationship, I have today been able to convey Her Majesty the Queen's hope that President Trump and the First Lady would pay a state visit to the United Kingdom later this year, and I'm delighted that the President has accepted that invitation. We are discussing how we can establish a trade negotiation agreement, take forward immediate high-level talks, lay the groundwork for a UK-US trade agreement, and identify the practical steps we can take now in order to enable companies in both countries to trade and do business with one another more easily. And I'm convinced that a trade deal between the US and the UK is in the national interest of both countries and will cement the crucial relationship that exists between us, particularly as the UK leaves the European Union and reaches out to the world. All right, so I really like that press conference. There was a funny moment where, you know, Trump called on somebody from the United States to ask a question. They asked a question. And Theresa May called on somebody from England who was there, a reporter, to ask a question. And it was a really, like, like it was like, why did, Donald Trump, why do you suck so much? Why should we trust you when you're, you know, a xenophobe and a homophobe and all these things? And, and after she's done asking the question, Trump turns and looks at Theresa May and says, that's the question you picked? That's the reporter you asked? <laughs> anyway, it was a funny moment. Um, but leading up to this press conference was interesting. I, I read a, a, an article in Huffington Post, which is 
almost always a mistake. And it said that, you know, the the uh, the White House screws up and they spell Teresa wrong. And they spell Teresa without an H. And Teresa May in England is actually a porn star. And so, you know, the White House was actually no- announcing that they were going to have a pre- joint press conference with a porn star. All right, this is the epitome of fake news. What a bunch of bull. <laughs> they just found the most embarrassing per- person with the name Teresa May and claimed that that was who the White House was talking about. Of course, the White House had no idea. It's a very small mistake, a very minor mistake. You know, there are various spellings of Teresa. Please, come on. And the fact that they would just pick out a porn... Who knows the name of porn stars? I can't name you one porn star in the United States. The fact that the Huffington Post would even run a stupid story like that, you know, it just shows you the length to which uh, a lot of the media will go to report fake news and to throw Donald Trump under the bus. And so and it's this really interesting thing right now because Donald Trump, you know, Donald Trump is not this hero of virtue and good people, right? He, Donald Trump is Donald Trump. But one thing he's been able to do is he's been able to rip off the mask of neutrality from the media, you know, whereas it was sort of this passive-aggressive relationship that they had with Republicans before. Now it's just all-out war, Right? They don't even care anymore. They're not even pretending to be impartial. They're just attacking, attacking, attacking Donald Trump. I was watching this uh, clip with uh, GQ. They made this little video about Donald Trump and, oh, how he can dress better. You know, he could change his pants. They should be a little tighter. His hair, they could get a haircut. You know, his, his tie is too thick. It should be a thinner tie. Also, and then at the end of this little video, it said, but the things he can't change, but he really should, is the fact that he's a misogynist and a homophobe and a sexist and all this different stuff. I'm like, you're GQ. GQ. Why are you commenting on his politics? You know, and if you do, why would you, why would you pick that side over? Uh, it, it's just the arrogance and, and, and the amount to which they cannot hide their true feelings has been astonishing in the media. All right, my recommendation for the week uh, go back and listen to some old music, especially Bing Crosby. I was listening to a song this week, and you know this is just a fun little song. I, I on my uh, I got iHeartRadio on my phone, right? And so you can kind of you can pick different artists, and it'll play songs from their genre and from their list of songs that they've sung in their career. And so one of the people is Bing Crosby, and he's got a lot of great songs. There's never been a better voice, right? There's never been a better voice for, uh, for Christmas music and for old love ballads. And he sings a lot of, you know, on all the kids' cartoons back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and, you know, half of those songs were all sung by uh, Bing Crosby, and he's just got the most iconic voice in America uh, in my opinion, in the 20th century. So this is a song called Tooraloo, and it was originally came out, I think, in 1913. And um, Bing Crosby was an Irishman, and so he was coming out with these songs about Ireland and sort of the culture from there. And since we had a representative of Great Britain come and visit our country this week, I figured it was an appropriate one. Tooraloo. Here we go. Tooraloo, 
That's it for this week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us, checking us out. Please, uh, please subscribe, and uh, we'd love to have you comment on, uh, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher. Leave us a review and a rating. It really helps us out. Tell your friends about the show. We'd love to have them with us, too. Until next week, I'm Patrick Ketchum. See ya.